0: guest today is Dr. Will Healy, returning to cover another seasonal crop. Our three-part mini-series on garden mums has had hundreds, if not thousands of downloads and we've heard tremendous feedback. So I couldn't wait to have Will back to kick off a two-parter on poinsettias. If you're listening in real-time, you'll know it's week 37 or 38 and your greenhouse is probably full of poinsettias. If you aren't listening in real-time, that's great because the tips and strategies shared over the next two episodes will be invaluable as you start planning your next poinsettia crop. In this first part, Dr. Healy takes a deep dive into nutrition, as he explains, when it comes to poinsettias, if you have the nutrition right, most of your problems will be greatly reduced. We start with an overview of the importance of monitoring EC and pH and quickly get into the nitty-gritty details of how to approach feeding your crop, the benefits of front-loading fertilizer, and even why withholding feed is a bad strategy. Will does a great job explaining how your feeding decisions impact the EC of the crop as well as how feed leads to excellent or poor crop presentation at retail. If you're wondering what to do if the EC starts to creep up, be sure to listen all the way to the end. We also spend time on pH and what can be gained by staying in the optimal 5.8 to 6.2 range. One of the most applicable parts of this episode is Dr. Healy's explanation of how to determine crop needs based on the size of leaves on the plant and how you can effectively measure them using your two hands. As we wrap the episode up, Will talks about watering and shares some poinsettia-specific watering strategies. As I mentioned before, you're going to want to listen to this one all the way to the end, and also share it with your entire poinsettia team, because when you're all on the same page, good things are bound to happen. I'm going to skip Connect 4 this time around, because this episode is so timely and critical, and I want to get right to it. Remember, STEM will be back in a couple weeks with Part 2 on Poinsettias, where we will cover height control, pest monitoring, and much more with Dr. Todd Cabin. As Senior Manager of Technical Services, Dr. Will Healy is responsible for developing production programs and operational efficiencies that produce consistent, high-quality young plants. He works with ball companies and customers throughout the world training their staff in cutting-edge production practices. Over the past 30 years, Will has developed innovative operational approaches and scheduling programs that reduce shrink, improve operational efficiency, with reduced crop times. Will's current research emphasis focuses on reducing shrink throughout the supply chain from our seed and cutting producers all the way through our customers' retail operations. As author of more than 400 Ball Culture Advisors, Will is well-versed in crop production. Before coming to Ball, Will was a faculty member at the University of Maryland and Colorado State University, where he published more than 30 scientific publications on floriculture production. Will received his Ph.D. from the University of Minnesota, working with Harold Wilkins. Will is a past guest covering Watering in a Two-Part Episode and Garden Mums in a Three-Part Miniseries. I'll include both links in the show notes. Will, welcome back to STEM. Well, thanks a lot,
1: Bill. Uh, can you believe that we're coming around to Christmas time? Because it's poinsettia time.
0: <laughs> it is, and you know, it's funny. We've talked watering, we've talked mums. It seems like uh, you know the, the watering topic was you know very broad and pretty much applied to every grower. Mums, again, a seasonal crop. A lot of greenhouses are producing mums, and I kind of feel the same way about poinsettias. Is you know there there, there are many growers who grow poinsettias. They've grown them for years, but kind of like we talked about with mums, there are all sorts of new genetics out there, different strategies, you know, you out there in the field are encountering different challenges each year. So I think that this is gonna be an excellent conversation.
1: Yeah, and, and I, hopefully what we're trying to do with this particular um, two-part um, STEM um, <clears throat> presentation on poinsettias is help growers move from the common belief that they've been growing poinsettias for 26 years, which means that they've done 26 different poinsettia crops to a person who basically can reproduce a top quality poinsettia 26 times in a row, because you you get one time, one shot a year to do this. And let's try to figure out how can we be ensured that we've got a high quality product every single year, because we've got some very specific rules or some processes that we're going to, implement and start you know if you haven't done it yet let's start thinking about it this time
0: and it it seems to me that poinsettias is one of those crops where you don't you don't really have too much of a margin for error margin being an economic term in this sense because you really can't afford to throw away too many of those plants so Even though this is part one of a two-part episode, we're not actually going to start at the very beginning of the crop, you know, receiving the liners, what to do at that stage. We're going to start a little bit further along after those points that have been planted, most likely pinched, especially if you're growing a large crop, um, a large uh, in terms of size. So you might ask why we're going to start in the middle, because you know, as we've talked about, Will, this is really the stage that can make or break the final quality of the crop. So, can you explain a little bit more fully why we chose to start um, a little bit further down the line versus right at the right at the beginning of receiving that crop?
1: Well, basically, um, I think it's a time in a grower's um, production cycle where all of the attention is now focused on poinsettias. So, it's actually a time when we can start taking and building some of the critical tools and techniques into finishing off a excellent um, crop. You basically, you've got about, oh, if you're an early shipper, you're probably about two months out. If you're a little later shipper, you know, within the next three months, you're basically this crop is gonna be gone. So we really got the you know, window of opportunity now to focus our attention on how do we grow a very consistent, high quality crop? Once we know these rules, and the nice thing about set is it's really easy to see the rules in action. Other crops is a little harder, but these we're gonna be able to see, really see the rules in action. Once you understand these rules, then you can then extrapolate it to earlier in the season to um, actually implement them earlier and even have further better quality product.
0: And so to put, point- Everything into perspective. If you're listening in real time, you know the date. If you're not listening in real time, Will and I are actually speaking in when are we? Week 37 of 2019. Right. So if you're listening uh, sometime in the future, um, just remember that Will and I are talking right now in week 37. So for part one of this two-part series, we want to focus on nutrition, and when it comes to poinsettia nutrition, it really from what I understand, comes down to monitoring, especially with the pH and EC levels. So, Will, why is this monitoring so critical?
1: Well, you know, Bill, just like when you're driving a car, you kind of need to have a real good idea of, you know, where are you going? You need to have those rear view mirrors, those side mirrors, you need to have a lot of visibility of where you've been, where you're going, so you can understand what's happening with that um, when you're driving. Same with a crop, you really need to look at what, what is changing. And in this episode, we're going to focus on the one component that makes or breaks the quality, the perceived value in the poinsettia crop over the years, you know, I've only been growing poinsettias now, mm, let's just call it, um, 30 plus years. So I don't sound too old. Um, but you know, in those years, it's always rolled back to if you've got the nutrition right, if you've got the EC right, if you got the pH right, insect and disease problems really are significantly reduced. You know, 30 years ago, I started a program called Integrated Pest Management or Integrated Crop Management is what we looked at. It. And really it got down to monitoring the pH and EC, growers that did it, their problems seemed to go away. Whereas those growers that didn't, it really, um, they just started compounding their problem and it got worse and worse and worse. So what we wanna do is we wanna really monitor the pH and the EC. Simple things to do. It's not um, a complicated process because what we know is that when you have um, an EC record over time of the crop, and usually a weekly test is more than enough, you can discern a lot of things that are happening inside the plant. You know, for example, Bill, you know, you're feeding the crop after you've stuck the um, cuttings and they're rooted. Um, And before the pinch, you're feeding the plants um, because they're taking up the nutrition. So you're basically looking at the um, EC and you're asking yourself, am I putting on enough feed? Um, Well, when you basically (laughs) look at the, um, the testing, what it starts telling you is if the plants are taking up the EC, then obviously the fe- EC of the fertilizer you're applying, there's not going to be any EC readings in the soil because the plant's going to take up everything that you put on. If the plants aren't growing, then obviously the plants, the EC you put on is going to be sitting there in the soil. So when you measure the soil, the EC levels go up. Does that make sense, Bill?
0: No, Ed, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I Like so, uh... so what, what you see then is that If you just feed the same 200, 250 or 300 parts per million um, nitrogen every single um, time you water and then you monitor on a weekly basis, what you'll see is that as you come up after the pinch, the EC skyrockets. And why does the EC skyrocket? Well, there's a very good reason. The plant's not taking up any nutrients because it's basically stopped growing, took out the growing point. Then when the plants go reproductive, the plants kind of stop. They think about what they're doing. They change from a vegetative to a reproductive state. And of course, at that point, they stop taking up any nutrients. So the EC again spikes. And then of course, right as you come into the transition bract, the, um, as you're coming in the transition bract, the EC slowly starts climbing because the plants have pretty much taken up everything they need. And so every, it's just basically accumulating. Now, you know, Bill, why is that important is really critical is because as the EC comes up, you damage the roots. When you damage the roots, what you find is that you have more disease problems. So you end up with root rots, you end up with stressed plants and stressed plants attract insects. So you end up with a lot more problems. So the smart way to do it is as you see the EC come up, then you cut back on the fertilizer you apply to better balance what the plant actually needs. So you might skip a feed as you go into a pinch, you might um, as they go reproductive, either because you're pulling short days or we're getting to the critical photo period that you basically start cutting back the feed until they start growing again, because you'll see suddenly that EC will drop in the soil because the plants are growing again. And then of course you taper back the EC as you come into the BRAC development, that early transition BRAC. So you can take the EC Monitor it over time, graph it on a piece of paper, and you can actually watch the ECs going up and down, and that helps you then decide, am I feeding enough or am I not? Am I putting the plant at risk or am I not? So it it basically becomes a real nice guideline to help you decide, where am I, what am I doing, and what should I be doing more or less of? when you look at the pH basically you can see the same thing but the pH um, is basically going to move much slower but it, it will indicate whether you've got enough limestone releasing in the soil to keep the pH where it needs to be because one of our biggest problems historically with poinsettias is that we've got BRAC necrosis or BRAC problems and botrytis sensitivity and all the research has shown time and again that that's related to low calcium levels so if your limestone isn't right, you're just not going to have the calcium levels. So you want to have have the limestone is indicated by the pH. Make sure your pH is in that 5862 range, and then you're good to go. So when you start looking at monitoring, you can tell a lot about the quality of the crop by just monitoring and recording what are your pHs and ECs.
0: I like the the car analogy that you shared early on, and it it strikes me that. Like all greenhouse production, probably don't need a driverless car because what we're looking here is very intricate, and there are a lot of nuances to the way these crops are produced. And you gave a really good overview of the importance of the pH and EC in nutrition. And we are going to dive a little bit deeper into those, especially with the feeding and um, you know short and long term issues that we're going to worry about with with related when we relate it to EC especially, then we're going to dive a little bit deeper into pH as well here in a minute or two. But before we do that, can you take us back a step? You'd mentioned the importance of testing and how should growers test poinsettia EC and pH?
1: Well, you know, we've got to do this um, easy and efficiently. Um, And I think that, Bill, you point out a good point about successful poinsettia growers walk their crop. Mm -hmm. They walk, they look, they look and feel the crop and understand what's going on. So one of the tools that you can use in your um, toolbox to get your grower and get yourself out there is to basically say we're going to go and collect a soil sample from, you know, about 10, maybe 10 plants or so um, every week. It forces you out through the block, makes you reach in, take a look. You know, reaching in and all of a sudden you get a, a ruffle of leaves and a cluster of white fly looking like um, a snow blizzard coming at you. These are all good things to know. Um, but So it does help you when you get out there and look through the crop. You don't have to make this complicated. You know, what we're looking advocating is just a PHEC. You take your um, pointer finger, stick it into the side of the pot because you want to get the soil that where the roots are because that's important. And just stick it in there as far as it'll go, and just pull a fingerful of soil up out of the edge of the pot, throw it into a, um, into some kind of well your coffee cup as you're walking <laughs> down through the greenhouse. Preferably, you drank the coffee first, um, but then you know about a coffee cup, and you go and you collect five, maybe ten um, samples until you've got you know about a half a cup of coffee of soil in your coffee cup, and then you add two parts of your clear water, no fertilizer in there, guys. Um, And so that you've got a two to one measurement by volume. Um, Stir it slightly and then let it sit for a while. Usually you sit, let it sit for minimum of a half hour. But if it sits, say you do this before, after break, and then you um, let them sit and then after lunch, that's a nice time to actually go and measure it. And then when you don't stir it again, you just let the solution that you're measuring, you know, the the solution, um, just so all the peat and everything settles down. And then you just stick your um, pH and EC probe in there and measure what is the um, EC and pH. Um, How many different plants you probably, if you've been doing stuff uniformly, you've got the same size pots, you know, look at the whole block, that might be enough if you've got number of different size pots and a number of different ages and a number. You probably want to look at each age of the crop, what the final planting date is, because they should all be on a different um, timeline. And if you have different size pots, you probably want to look at the different pots because they'll hold a different amount of nutrition. So those are, you know, how many samples that you take. Gaining the knowledge of what's going on out there will help you make good decisions. So um, That's basically, you don't have to do it very complicated. If you want to do full tissue tests and um, send off to um, soil tests, that's also, you know, it's a good thing. Um, Doing it once or twice is also very beneficial. And if it's a really, really good crop, you may want to go and test that because that will help you understand when you have something that looks a little dodgy or doesn't look quite right, because then you can test when the plants don't look good. And then you've got, a sample from your greenhouse that says, when they were perfect, these are my numbers. And then you can compare what was bad when those bad plants come along. So, you know, full testing of soil and tissue, a good thing to do at least once, maybe twice in the season, but the just pull a finger of soil out and measure it with your pH and EC meter. Um, you should be doing that at least once a week.
0: Okay, and I love that uh, that piece of advice about uh, taking a look at what what these numbers look like with a good crop. I don't I don't know that everybody thinks about that. You know, you tend to you know start doing a lot of measuring when things aren't looking good, but you know to have a, a baseline to compare to when you have a really top notch crop, I think is is going to really be helpful in the future. Mm-hmm. So let's get jump back right into into the strategies and. I'm gonna start by asking, what do you want to do or avoid in terms of feeding at this point? Because I know that what you're feeding with, how you're feeding is going to impact the EC and pH, but I guess I'm not entirely sure how, but how how does your feed decision impact EC or pH and what should growers be doing at this point in terms of feed?
1: Okay, you know, you have to sit down and start asking yourself, you know, and this is a little bit of science here, but um, work on a number of crops has shown that the majority of the nitrogen, and that's indic- that also indicates all the other nutrients, but the majority of the nitrogen that is present in the plant at the time of sale, so when they're fully flowered back, you know, another two to three months, is taken up by the plant before floral induction actually occurs because how plants take up nutrients is they basically move from the soil into the roots, from the roots into the older leaves. And then these are the nutrients that really we're concerned about. So it's nitrogen, it's magnesium, it's phosphorus. These nutrients move into the old foliage. They build up in the old foliage so that you start building up a reservoir of, of nutrients there. And then from the old foliage, they're retranslocated into the developing um, foliage going in the younger and younger foliage. So if you're running a deficiency in that old foliage, then guess what you're gonna have in the young foliage, Bill? You know, it's, don't have it in the plant, in the old foliage, it's not gonna be in the young foliage. Right. So it's important to feed aggressively early in the crop so that you can load the bottom leaves with the maximum amount of nutrition so that later on they it can translocate it into the developing plants. A lot of times we see growers that have all kinds of nutrient deficiencies as we wander forward in another four to six weeks. And they say, I've got magnesium, I've got phosphorus deficiency. Well, what should I do? And I always feel like, well, what you should have done is back in September, you should have made sure that you fed adequately to load those old leaves because as all you're seeing when you see deficiencies in um, you know, late October and first part of November is the plant doing what it does? It moves nutrients from the old foliage into the young foliage. So obviously, if you don't have enough in the old foliage, it's going to be deficient. So let's make sure that we're getting enough fertilizer on the crop um, from the very beginning. So that's why we want really want to make sure that we're um, getting the plants fed from day one. Some growers say, "Well, I'm." Not, I'm not gonna feed them because I don't want them to stretch. I don't want them to grow very much. Well, that's withholding feed is a bad strategy because yes, you can turn them green, no question. Yes, you can make them look kind of good. Yeah, but if you really wanna grow great, high quality, consistent product that has great shelf life and good consumer post-harvest life, you gotta feed it from the beginning and then try not, and then you can taper back later on in the crop and avoid high salts that leads to diseases, which leads to late season stretch, which leads to all kinds of late problems. Feed early and get those plants um, growing. So that's probably, probably one of the first things. Now, of course, what you wanna do is you wanna feed so that you don't end up with high ECs in the soil. Remember that the measurement of the EC in the soil is a measurement of what's left in the soil after the plant has taken up what it needs. So you put on, say, an EC of 2.5. You measure 0.5 one day later. The plant has taken up the equivalent of 2 EC. So the plant takes it up and uses it. So you really want to be measuring that so that you're feeding aggressively, but you're also seeing that the ECs are staying low. If you put on two and the soil is two the, a, a day later, the plant hasn't taken up anything. Because did you know that, Bill, what we see in many crops is that the EC is absorbed within about four to 12 hours after application. Did you know that? Wow. No, I didn't know that. Wow. So you know the plants, the plants will take it up quite rapidly. So um, if a day later, two days later, you you still see EC in there, the plants are not taking up that feed. So high ECs are just going to lead to damaged roots. So this is why we want to make sure that we get a lot of feed on them to really start loading the plants early. Um, And then we also need to remember that late in the crop, we need to start backing up because the plants don't need it because they're translocating it. So you really need to be thinking about you know, what is my parts per million that I'm applying? Now, one of the things that you do need to remember is that micronutrients, although low in volume per application, are important. You know, you're not adding as much, you know, you're not adding much. When the fertilizer manufacturers um, basically formulate a bag of fertilizer, they're assuming that you are applying 200 parts per million of nitrogen. And because you're doing that, you're also applying the appropriate amount of micronutrients that has been determined through good research. Now, Bill, if you go and only apply 100 parts per million nitrogen, this is a trick question, how much micronutrients are you putting on? Half as much?
0: Yeah, okay.
1: Because you're not putting 200, you're only putting 100. So you're putting half as much micronutrients on. So when you are putting um, less than 200 parts per million of a pre fertilizer, you better start trying to address what am I doing about my micronutrient package to make sure that I'm not running low in iron, manganese, boron. These are all critical nutrients. And of course, the all time important one for poinsettias is is molybdenum, MO, because it helps basically absorb the nitrogen and use the nitrogen within the plant. So growers that cut the feed levels down to hundred parts per million, they better be looking at, do we have a micronutrient package? We can supplement that hundred parts per million. So we have enough micros present when we're feeding the plant, because otherwise we're going to run into molybdenum deficiency and other problems when we get later in the crop. So does that so kind of sum up what what we're looking for of what what's one of our strategies or some of our strategies from generally feeding?
0: I think so. And then that that is good to know that if you are cutting cutting the feed um, from a nitrogen perspective, um, you can also add in those those micros separately.
1: Right. right. And of course, if you're feeding 400 parts per million, you're putting on twice as much micros mm-hmm. as you normally would, which might be okay. But also, you know, just be aware of that you are putting on a lot of micros out there.
0: Okay. Now, I think that that, that's a good overview and that makes a lot of sense. So you'd mentioned a little bit earlier that if the EC gets high or you're seeing it creep up, it will result in, I think you mentioned root damage and just general disease problems. Can you take a minute and go into a little bit more detail about what short-term and long-term issues to worry about if your EC is creeping up?
1: Well, okay, so if that EC starts creeping up, there is a point where it does become potentially lethal um, to the root systems, because, you know, you um, you think about your root system, and, you know, a happy root is a fuzzy root, okay? So what you have is you have all of these hair roots, um, which if you look at it, it um, basically we pull pot plant out of the pot and which you look at your um, nice white roots just beyond just back from the tip you should see all kinds of fuzz and this is good because that fuzz is basically root hairs which increase the root absorb water and nutrient absorbing surface area and that increased absorption area basically spells good post harvest life and good overall growth because the more surface area the more nutrients the better the water uptake the better the overall plant quality is going to be. If you have plants that have roots that are um, slick, you know, there's no hair on them, those are called water roots, which tells you you've got reduced surface area, you've got reduced nutrient uptake, and also you potentially are not gonna have the ability to take up as much water, so your post-harvest life of that plant is also going to suffer. So we really wanna be focusing on that. Well, what happens when the EC starts going up? Well, those little hair roots get dried out really fast. You know, if you made it through your chemistry class, which a lot of us barely did, um, but you've made it through your chemistry class, you remember something about osmotic gradients where the um, water moves from a high salt place to a low salt? Um, no, I think we got that backwards. It goes from a low salt to a, um, a high salt is the way the water because it goes to try to dilute it right bill i think so, so just checking to see if you're listening <laughs> um, so we basically so if you got high salts out there in the soil and it basically sucks the water out of those hair roots and they die so if your salts get too high and by too high on a two to one you start looking at um is okay, 2 gets to be a problem, 2.5 gets to be a serious problem, you know, 3 that gets to be really, really problematic. Um, And then if the soil dries, the salts effectively become more concentrated in the soil, and they dry them out even faster. So you really want to make sure that your salt levels are hanging right around, you know, one is a happy place, nobody died at one. When using a two to one, so you kind of want to make sure that your soil salinity levels, the EC levels, stay right around one.
0: Okay. And I think, you know, when you said what you said a little bit earlier, I think is something that's worth repeating at this point is that it's these root hairs um, and the fuzzy roots that actually do result in the best post harvest condition for that plant. And especially with poinsettias that's really what we need is for these to look fantastic at retail and to perform well for, for the end customer. So those root hairs and in, in the way that that um, the health of the plant at this stage is really gonna be critical on, on, on down the line.
1: Yeah, because if you, if you really sit down and look at the torturous route and experience that our plants have between the time they leave your greenhouse bench and get a sleeve wrapped up around them until they get to the consumer's home where they are unwrapping that particular pot and then able to rewater it. There's a lot of bad things that happen as far as temperature and drying. And you know, you want a very vigorous branched, hairy root system that will be able to tolerate those kind of stress conditions, that they can find water and survive. You know, so that's really important. To basically have a good solid root system so that you can be um, successful at the consumer's post harvest experience.
0: So let's jump into pH a little bit. You mentioned um, the optimal range is 5.8 to 6.2. What exactly is gained by keeping the pH in this range specific to your point set of crop?
1: Well, all of the nutrients, specifically the micronutrients, availability at the root system to be taken up are all pH dependent. So when the pH is in this range, you end up with your maximum nutrient uptake for just about, you know, just about all of the nutrients and micronutrients and macronutrients. As the pH starts dropping below that, well, certain nutrients become really available. You know, one of the, we see many times is when the pH drops, iron becomes really available, whether it's, applied or not. There's a lot of iron floating around that's in the soil that's bound. And suddenly what you end up with is iron toxicity. If on the other hand, the pH rises too high, you start getting at 6.5, 6.8, you know, and even higher, um, you start running into problems where iron is not available because it's all bound up onto the soil. So you end up with iron deficiencies. So iron is kind of the one everyone looks at but the reality is that same kind of availability um, problem occurs with manganese (Mn), with magnesium (Mg), and also your calcium is um, availability and just and your potassium uptake. They're all pH sensitive. So the happy place is this five eight six two, and if you're using fertilizers, um, that should be more than um, you know sufficient to manage it. If you have to go using um, you know, you've got very high alkalinity water as some growers will see, and you have to go in there and start using um, additional, say, sulfuric acid to dry, to lower the um, alkalinity and the pH of the, of the water. Um, you just have to be aware of the fact that, you know, monitor that carefully so that you don't push the pH too low, or you basically fail to apply the right amount of acid and the pH climbs too high. So pH monitoring is important um, and it's a little, it's less critical than EC, but it's also very critical for the uptake of those nutrients that are, are in the soil.
0: Okay. Which, which again, will, um, kind of are the building blocks for having that healthy plant, yep. um, that you're sending to market. So let's, what about fertilizer formulation? You, you mentioned a couple minutes ago, that at some point the type of fertilizer used on that poinsettia crop changes right so i guess I'm, I'm gonna ask you just to get a little bit more specific about that what to do and why when it comes to fertilizer formulation
1: well you know the interesting thing about um poinsettias and this is where you know my lead-in comment was learning the role of fertilization on plant Um, aesthetics. How does the plant look? How does the plant perform? It's really neat to do it with poinsettias because they are probably the single most responsive plant that we have that you can actually see the response in the plant. So let's kind of walk through this so that you can start understanding what what response is caused by different fertilizers. So when you take a look at your fertilizer bag um, and you see, you know, 20, 10, 20, or 15, 5, 15 or whatever, and you look down into the label, they'll basically, you know, they'll have nitrogen 15, but they'll tell you right below that, you know, where did the nitrogen sources come, you know, what are the nitrogen sources? Is it due to ammonia sulfate, ammonia nitrate, ammonium phosphate, you know, is it their ammonia form in there is urea, which is an ammonia form. And they'll tell you what percent of that 50, say if it's a 20, 10, 20, what percent of that 20% is in the ammonical form? How much ammonia is coming, how much nitrogen is coming from ammonia? Then they'll also indicate that they basically supplied nitrate from um, calcium nitrate, potassium nitrate, magnesium nitrate, so that you can actually read how much of the nitrogen is in the ammonia form versus the nitrate form. This is the most critical information that you as a grower need to know when you're looking at poinsettia growth. Why is that important? It's because we know from way more experience than we should have that the combination of ammonia plus phosphorus does two things. One, you know, everyone understands ammonia plus phosphorus causes inner node stretch or basically makes the plants tall. We also know that ammonia plus phosphorus makes the leaves really big. So if you want really big leaves, and we'll talk a little bit more about, you know, you know how do you define what is a big leaf? But if you want really big leaves, you feed them with a lot of ammonium phosphorus. phosphorus. So if you have a 20, 10, 20, then that second number being 10, and that means that, you know, there's a lot of phosphorus in 10. Um, you know, 20, 10, 20 at 200 parts per million, basically will provide about 40 parts per million phosphorus. 40 parts per million phosphorus is a lot of phosphorus. Less than 10 parts per million phosphorus is not very much phosphorus. So you need to basically look at between 10 to 15, 20% phosphorus if you're trying to um, you know get nice sized leaves. But if you want really jumbo leaves, you know, 20, 20, 20. Downside of that is you get really tall plants because of the phosphorus and ammonia causing stretch. But then you also have um, really big leaves, like dinner plate sized leaves. So if that's the look and feel that you want, then that's the fertilizer you need to use. Of course, for every ying, there's a ying, and the, the opposite side of the ammonia is lack of ammonia. So if you use 15015, for example, notice there's no phosphorus in there, awesome. The 15015 does have a little bit of ammonia in there just to, so that you don't end up with the bag of fertilizer turning into a giant rock so it doesn't um, basically cake on you. But there's, it's primarily nitrate, calcium, potassium, magnesium, nitrate. So you've got a nitrate-based fertilizer. And so you have very little or no ammonia in there. So consequently, if you want to keep really tiny leaves, what do you feed with? You basically feed with a an ammonia, low ammonia or no ammonia based fertilizer. So read the label and see what percentage of the total nitrogen is in the ammonical form. And that will start telling you very quickly, is this particular fertilizer going to give me big leaves and a lot of stretch, tall plants, or is it going to give me small leaves and um, more compact plants? So, you know, this this fertilizer, decision, what is the formulation of that bag, will help you determine what end picture do I need? What end picture am I going to end up looking? Do I want to have a plant that has small leaves on the bottom and big leaves on top? You know, what happens to that plant, Bill, when you start doing stuff like that, where you put all the leaves up, the big (laughs) leaves on top?
0: It's gonna fall right over. Yeah,
1: you basically, if if you suffer from breaking branches, you probably have got your nitrogen backwards because you're basically pumping it with ammonia and phosphorus, which of course is going to yield big leaves. Mm -hmm. Big leaves weigh more than little leaves. And so if you put all the big leaves at the top, you're top heavy and you fall over, basically the branches break off. Conversely, if you feed heavily with ammonia early, you're gonna end up with big leaves on the bottom of the plant so that when it's sitting on a table, you don't have to look at the person across the table from you because you've got all of this foliage sitting right at the top of the pot. So you can actually customize the look of your plant. And, you know, impressions and, um, of what your plants look like are how consumers determine quality or no quality. You know, if it's top heavy, consumers look at those and say, mm, is that as good a quality as where you have it? the big leaves on the bottom right across the top of the, of the pot? And then that basically gives you a much better quality appearance because it's got more mass at the bottom. Because that's really the differentiator on poinsettias. Two pots next to each other. One of them's got leaves at the bottom. One of them's got all the leaves at the top. See which one sells better.
0: Right. And which and one... you, I've, I've heard you say, you know, you want to shoot for that almost a pyramid structure. of the plant where you've got those big leaves and all those good breaks down toward the bottom and then you're toning it with the smaller leaves um going up to the top which creates that that sort of pyramid shape that is going to look nice at retail it's going to look nice sitting on that dining room table it's going to look nice when you give it to grandma at christmas time it's just a, a better plant so OK, I think that, that that's a good overview um, of sort of the formulation and how to apply it and when to, you know, when, when to dial back on, on one type um, going for those smaller leaves. So what are the signs to look for when, when you're trying to decide if you're using too much or too little ammonia or phosphorus? I know that you know, I've, I've heard you talk about and I'm still trying to get my, my sort of head around this hand or fingers strategy to measure the the plant leaf. But can you share, I guess, with the listeners a little bit about that? Because it is a, a pretty easy way to get a handle on, on how your crop's doing um, and then maybe what to look for when, you, when you're making that decision to dial back on the ammonia or phosphorus.
1: Yeah, you, basically what we do is we do the finger test. How many fingers does it take to cover the width of the leaf? So you look at um, a recently fully expanded leaf. So it's not the leaf that's coming straight up, it's not the leaf that's kind of coming down, but it's probably about the third or the fourth leaf from the top. And you look at that leaf, because that's pretty much as big as the leaves are gonna get. So what you look at is you basically take your your hand and you set it on top of the leaf. And of course, then you basically look at the bulk of the leaf is covered by two fingers, that's a tiny leaf, three fingers. That's a nice size leaf. You're kind of in the right ballpark, four fingers. Well, if you're on the bottom of the plant, you know, if you're measuring say one of the bottom leaves that's sitting right at the top of the pot. four finger leaf at the bottom. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Five finger leaf on the bottom. That's pretty darn big. (laughs) So because you got that, unless you've got a really big hunker plant, you know, you're starting to look at, you know, you've got, plants that need to be, um, you know, 24, 26 inches tall and they've got to be, you know, you've got them in a 10, 12 inch pot. Yeah. You probably want to get, you know, some pretty good sized leaves to get things, some mass, what you want to do is you want to go and just kind of do a finger test and as soon as you that middle um, age leaf, because most poinsettias have about seven to nine leaves from the break to the transition leaf. So from where it comes off of the um, cutting up to the transition, you need a minimum of um, seven, but you need nine or more. So you probably are looking at um, the leaf, if you're counting from the bottom about the leaf, four or five coming from the bottom, having a leaf in there right around three, four fingers, that's probably okay. But if you start moving to leaves even higher that there's still four or five, you've got too much ammonia in the crop. If you look at, if you go and look at your points, so that is today, and you probably have pinched them, they've already started growing out, you probably have got some fully expanded leaves on the bottom, and you go and you start measuring those with your fingers, and you've got one finger leaf, which that bottom leaf that's right by the um, cutting where it's first leaf that unfolded, you know, it's one finger leaf, you didn't put enough ammonia on the crop early to get that leaf to expand. If you find that that first leaf is like two or three starting to get in the ballpark of having fed the cutting you know the liner sufficiently so that when you pinched it you actually had some nice leaf size so it's a i think a nice and easy way to go and start as a manager walking around and you know laying your fingers down on the leaves and kind of saying yeah i think we're at the right amount of ammonia or well maybe we can cut back the ammonia or maybe we should add a little bit more to get our leaf size a little bit bigger because the leaf size, the width of the leaf, gives you the bulk of the plants, gives you the filler, makes the plants look quality. Yes. If you got all these two and two, two finger leaves, they're going to look a little wimpy and look a little thin. You know these are all words you can and usually then you end up with a two finger leaf, you end up with a lot of seeing stems, which then also perceived as low quality. So you can I use say what you
0: end up with is a bunch of point is sitting on the bench at the end of the season.
1: Yeah, pretty
0: much. Pretty <laughs> much. Okay, so. that that's that's good, and I, I it makes a lot more sense to me um, now hearing you explain it that way. How many growers do you do you think are actually kind of using that or a similar method? I mean, when when you go and work with growers, how many how many folks are are kind of actively walking the crops and and thinking about them that way?
1: Um, I would say that, that, you know, top that I I learned this, of course, many years ago from a grower who was produced probably the finest quality that you've ever seen consistently year in, year out. You know, he didn't, he grew the same crop 26 times in a row. He didn't grow 26 different crops. It's because he basically dialed in. We need to have this much ammonia. How do I know if I've got enough ammonia? I go and put my fingers on him and I can tell. So not a lot of growers are doing it, but it's a technique that really top growers are doing. And I think that we have to learn from the top growers because, you know, you only get one shot a year. So you better go listen to the people who do it and find out how do they do this? How do they make that judgment call? Because soil testing isn't going to tell you how much ammonia is in the plant because tissue tests tell you total nitrogen. Fun fact, useless information. You need to know how much ammonia has gotten in that plant. What is, did the ammonia respond? Did it cause the plants to stretch? You know, and the, actually the interesting thing, and we're going to pretty much talk about that in the next um, podcast, is the whole question of um, how do you control stretch? How do you control those inner nodes? Well, if all of a sudden you've got, Bill, nothing but four- and five-finger leaves, how much growth regulator do you think you should
0: use? Right, well, you're going to need more.
1: Yeah, a lot more. And so those plants are gonna stretch. And of course, if you're sitting there with a speck of a 20 inch poinsettia and you're sitting at four in, 14 inches <laughs> and you've got a bunch of two finger leaves, what do you think one course of action might be to get them to stretch? Put I on some ammonium, maybe. ammonium yeah. nitrate. Just
0: feed, feed, feed.
1: Yeah, ammonium and phosphorus because feeding with nitrate is probably how you got there.
0: Hmm.
1: Feeding with ammonium and phosphorus Probably is going to get you to where you need to be because it'll help stretch them. Um, now it'll blow up the leaves, but it will help you stretch. So you know you can use this technique to help guide you to fine tune that last quality question of, am I where I need to be, or do I need to change what I'm doing?
0: Okay, that 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 makes sense. Thanks for thanks for jumping into that a little bit. So before we wrap up here, I know that you know we've done. We've talked a lot about watering and and different watering strategies, the importance of watering, watering levels. And I know that, you know, poinsettias probably do have some nuances when it comes to watering. There's probably some general watering guidelines that to follow. Can you remind listeners just a little bit about some best practices um, specific to watering their poinsettia crop?
1: Sure. You know, we have to remember that, you know, there are levels, you know, one through five. And we've got the watering that basically tells you how you can determine what your um, measurement is one to five. And, you know, but you can use the same concept that, you know, in a, in a measurement, you want to go from a level four to a level, um, water up to a four, which we all know is basically a drip out of the bottom of the pot. That's a good indication that you're at a level four water running out of the bottom pot is basically telling you you're at a level five. So what you wanna be doing is you wanna be getting there to get a drip out of the bottom, and that'll take you to a four, and then you wanna take it back down to a level two. So in a level two basically means that the top is probably tanning and the bottom of the pot still is, um, you know, is still moist. And what that'll do is that'll help drive the roots from the top to the bottom. Now, if you want to, and that's qualitative measurement. So you visually see what it is. Now, if you wanted to go and put a weight to that, You can. And I, um, you know, we do that on some of our production where we take large pots and we do weigh them. And what that, what we're doing is we're saying, okay, when they are hit the dry spot, um, that's the weight. And of course we've got plant material on there. That's a lot of weight of the plant, but it'll basically tell you that, okay, so we dried it down to the point where we believe and we record that weight. Then we go and we add it up till you get to the drip. And that basically tells you okay, we need to, um, we've added 300 grams of water to take it from the dry point to the wet point. So that's 300 grams of water. So if we put on 300 grams of water, we have to now get rid of 300 grams of water. So by then measuring it, you can then make a decision that, okay, so tomorrow I come back in and I realize um, I've only lost 100 grams. Okay, I shouldn't water. Right, don't water it that day. Don't water. So then on Wednesday I come in and I lose another 150 grams. So now I've lost 250 of that 300 grams. Water, don't water. And so then I can kind of look at this and go, yeah, I should probably water. Mm -hmm. What this does is it helps discipline the grower, especially early in the crop when Um, It's most critical to get this wet, dry cycling, to force the roots to the bottom of the container and really get the branching and get the whole rooting process started. It helps force the grower to be trained not to water. Because remember, we mistrain our growers. We train our growers and say, your job is to water. Mm -hmm. So to do a good job, what do they do, Bill? They go out and water right whether it needs it or not by god they're going to water so what you want to be able to do is we really should be training our growers to dry the plants out Mm -hmm. every time you hit a the dry target we're going to pay you Mm -hmm. it'll completely change your whole philosophy because guess what they're going to do are they going to water or they're going to try to figure out how to dry them out
0: they're going to pay close attention to dry how to dry that crap out
1: right so um what that does is it changes the dynamic of what you what you're driving them, because you really want the crops to dry out. Drying them out basically increases branching, plants looking for water, increasing um, fuzzy roots, increasing the search for water and nutrients, so that you end up with a higher quality plant when you have a plant that basically goes through a four down to a two on a regular cycling basis. Focusing on early crop development through the next, say, 15-20 days is probably the most critical time of the life of the plant because that up through about October 1st, when you start are trying to decide short days or you're basically going through natural short days, you know, this is a very critical time of the crop for having a strong root system because it's only going to get murkier and darker and more miserable growing conditions except in the Southern Hemisphere um, from this point on. So really focus on your roots right now.
0: And I'll go back um, in the show notes and link to those episodes on watering. They are two of our most popular episodes we've ever done on STEM. But I know that there are still plenty of people who need to listen and share those with their team because the watering levels is such a great way to keep everybody on the same page. Um, And again, it pertains very much to a poinsettia crop. So, Will, as I mentioned a few times, this is part one of a two-parter. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with uh, part two. So, what should listeners expect to learn in part two?
1: Well, part two, we're really going to focus on monitoring because, you know, if you think about success, it's about if you measure it, you can change it, you can manage it. So, you really want to be monitoring your crop for, to manage it correctly. So, we're really going to talk about um, monitoring for height control, a critical part of hitting the market requirements is having plants that are tall enough so what and it's not just how you monitor it it's okay now that you've got the data what are you going to do about it so we'll talk a little bit about you know what do you do if you're too tall what do you do if you're too small what do you do if you're you know you're not in the right place that you should be so it really we're going to talk about that whole monitoring Todd Cavins is going to be covering that so we'll be able to have a. um good discussion on monitoring and using the different tools that you have available. Also, insect control. Monitoring your insect control, you know, is really critical to understand, you know, where is the pest, how is it increasing, decreasing, so that you can basically um, understand where you are and why you are failing. You know, what is the three-legged stool of success for a insect control program? So, you know, cause it's usually one of the legs is broken and that's why you're failing. So, you know, we're going to learn, talk about that. So it's not just the monitoring, but what do you do with it once you've got the data?
0: Great. So we're going to have good uh, practical information like we did this episode. So, Will, thank you so much for sharing so much information. I know that Ball Seed has a ton of resources available for poinsettia growers, and I'm going to include a lot of links in the show notes, both from Ball Seed and from Select North America, which is a partner company that offers some of the best poinsettia genetics available today. But Will, as always, thank you so much for your time and expertise. And like you mentioned, we're gonna be back in a couple of weeks with Dr. Todd Cavins, who's gonna jump in and and take take on part two of this poinsettia series. And I'm excited uh, to hear from him as well. Uh, So Will, thank you very, very much.
1: Good, and happy poinsettia growing.
0: Thanks so much for listening to STEM, insider tips for greenhouse pros, and special thanks for helping us reach almost 13,000 downloads. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to recommend it to your peers and coworkers. And you can subscribe on any podcast player using iTunes, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and more. We really appreciate the support. I'm Bill Calkins, and you can always reach me by email at bcalkins at ballhort.com. That's B C A L k-i-n-s, at ballhort.com. Be sure to follow Ball Seed on LinkedIn for tons of B2B content related to STEM topics, timely technical tips, and more. And follow STEM Greenhouse Podcast on Instagram. That's STEM Greenhouse Podcast, all one term, for behind-the-scenes looks, sneak peeks, and all sorts of good stuff. I did take a break from Instagram for a bit, but have no fear, STEM Greenhouse Podcast is back. Let's end this episode with a quote about repetition from Norman Vincent Peale. Repetition of the same thought or physical action develops into a habit, which, repeated frequently enough, becomes an automatic reflex.